Amen. So let's just recap everything that has happened between where we were last week in chapter 2 and where we are this week in chapter 6. There's a lot that takes place here. If you remember from last week, Exodus begins in crisis, not just for Israel, but for Moses. Moses' life seems like it's in danger from the moment it starts because Pharaoh has issued this command that all little Hebrew baby boys are to be killed. But if you remember, obviously you know the story, Moses is saved. God delivers Moses in this incredible way. But the important thing to remember is that Moses isn't what Exodus is about. Moses isn't the point of this story of Exodus. It's what we normally associate with Exodus is this character Moses. But the thing is, everything that God is doing for Moses, he's going to do for the whole of his people. So that means when God saves Moses, it's a sign, a symbol that God is about to save his people. Moses has this unique, intimate relationship with God, right? And the hope of Exodus is that soon all of God's people will have this intimate relationship with him. He's making a way for it to happen. He will be their God, and they will be his people. God is making a way for this to be true, for him to dwell among his people and for them all to know him in this way. He's saving them that they might know him in this kind of way that Moses does. Then there's the whole burning bush episode. You all know it well. It happens in chapter 3. We actually aren't covering that in this series because we already talked about it in Lent this year. It wasn't that long ago, so it felt a little silly for us to, to go right back to Exodus 3 if we, we've done it so recently. If you're interested in that, you'd like to know more, feel free to check that out. You can do that in our podcast and uh, sermon section on the website. Easy. But the point of that story, really, in the whole of Exodus is to identify Moses as God's representative. He's the chosen one who's going to kind of be the catalyst for Exodus in Egypt. He's the one who's going to make all of this happen. And God tells Moses in that moment, I am sending you. I'm sending you to Pharaoh with pretty bad news, right? We're leaving. We're not going to be here much longer, right? We want to go out into the wilderness to worship. Pharaoh, obviously, predictably, does not respond well. Neither Aaron or Moses is excited about going to tell him because they know he won't respond well. And you probably know the story, how it goes. This episode, when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, it's really meant to show us something. Before they ever say it out loud, we're realizing how hard-hearted Pharaoh really is. It will tell us that later, overtly. It will say exactly that. It will say even further than that, that God actually hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's this sort of mysterious idea. But just so you know, ahead of time, Pharaoh's heart was already hard enough, is the sense we get. He was already hard-hearted. And what he does is not only refuse what Moses and Aaron are asking him to do, not only does he say they can't go out into the wilderness to worship, to take this Sabbath rest together, no, they can't. And instead, what they're going to do is continue to make the same quota of bricks every day, but this time without one of the necessary materials. Find your own straw, he says. Supply yourself with your own straw, right? So things get worse for the slaves in this moment, right? And so at this point in the story where we're coming in, in chapter 6, not only is Pharaoh angry with Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are angry with Moses and Aaron, Moses is 
devastated. He's only made things worse. Like how would God ask such a thing of him? He's just made it worse. And I feel like that's something we can all identify with. Like these moments in our life where we feel like this was what we were supposed to do. Certainly with our faith, it's like, like, I felt like God was calling me to do this. I felt like this was the right thing to do. It's not like I was doing this on my own. Like, I, I prayed about this. I considered this seriously. I asked other people, and here I am doing it, and things just got worse. Why would God ask me to do something and then just allow it to get worse? It's in that kind of tension that this passage begins, right in the middle of this awful tension. And there's this sense that there's a collision that's coming. You know something is about to happen. It's a collision between God's faithfulness, God's sufficiency, His power, His, His steadfast love, and His people's fear and inadequacy and disobedience, their resistance. They push back against it, right? Pharaoh, interestingly, isn't the only one who resists God. In this story, it's not just Pharaoh. These enslaved people don't want to rock the boat any more than it's been rocked, right? They, they, don't, they don't know how they feel about things just getting worse and worse. Moses, he doesn't want to fail again either. So neither the Israelite slaves nor Moses is particularly interested in failing again and again and making things worse. So they, they complain. They resist. They push back, right? And we do too. Again, this is something we can relate to. But that's not the focus of the passage. You probably noticed there's this line that's repeated. I am the Lord, he says. Four different times. I am Yahweh. The whole passage revolves around this idea. I am the Lord. It's like God is acknowledging, no, Moses isn't ready to lead. The people aren't really ready for freedom, it seems like. And Pharaoh isn't ready to lose his free workforce, right? It will cost him so much. God knows all of this. And he keeps saying, I hear you but I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Don't forget this, right? Have you ever been in one of those conversations before? I thought about it as I was reading this passage. You get in one of these conversations where this phrase comes up over and over again. I feel like in the last probably decade, it's become all the more common. We say things like, I hear you to one another. We say, I see you, right? Because this is very important to us. We want these people we care about to feel seen and, and heard and understood. And so we say these kinds of things. I hear you. I was in a meeting recently. We're sitting there talking, and this person keeps kind of interjecting into the conversation. I hear you, but... I hear you, but... It's, it's, it's not a way of, of stating agreement. It has the appearance of agreement, but there is no agreement whatsoever. It's, it's like I'm saying, in essence... I, I agree that those are the words that are coming out of your mouth, but they are wrong, and here is my counter-argument. But it's kind of sneaky, right? It drives me crazy. I hear you, but, and this is the conversation Moses is having with God. God, I, I hear you. I understand rightly. This is what you're telling me to do, but really? Did you see what happened the last time I made an attempt at this? And God literally replies, no, I, I hear you. 
I have heard the groaning of the Israelites. I know what they're suffering. I know what you've been through. And yes, you're not ready. You are not ready to lead these people. And no, Pharaoh isn't listening. And these people who are about to be saved, they're not really sure they want to be saved if this is what it looks like, right? But you're all wrong. And here's my counter-argument. Over and over again, he says, I am the Lord. That's what the the whole of, of Exodus rests upon. What is about to be happened cannot be explained any other way than this. The author of Exodus wants you to know what's about to play out in Exodus cannot be explained any other way than this. I am the Lord. This is what it all rests upon. Not on Moses or his abilities, not on Pharaoh or his generosity or kindness, his willingness to cooperate, not on the willingness of his own people to cooperate. No, there's no other explanation. He is the Lord. And he's going to do it. He's the subject of the book of Exodus, right? Not Moses, not Pharaoh, not even slavery for that matter. God, I am the Lord. It's repeated for us on purpose because that's all we need to know to understand what is about to play out. None of this makes sense unless I am the Lord. He's acknowledging that. But this story is one of resistance. There's this resistance to this truth. God is saying, I am the Lord. And yet there's all this resistance from so many different angles. And what we're left to consider is why. Why do they resist God? Why do we resist God? Where did we get the notion that we could even resist God from? Where does this come from? What is it in us that makes us think we can do this? And in each situation, what you see play out is that all of these people, whether it's the Israelites or Moses or Pharaoh, they they don't understand God. They don't know him fully, it will tell us. In verse 3, you probably noticed it, right? God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob as Lord Almighty. It's kind of this interesting thing that they're doing, as El Shaddai. You've probably heard that before, this Hebrew name, Lord Almighty, is the best translation people have for it. I appeared to them in that way, and they they know me in this sense. It's not even a vague sort of knowledge. They know me. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. It's kind of a mystery. We don't know exactly what that looks like. What we do know is that is saying, honestly, God is making clear his people have still to experience all of who he is. There's still something left untouched that they have not seen or experienced yet. They don't know him fully. And if Moses and the Israelites don't know him fully, we can't expect Pharaoh to know him fully or to understand him or be able to make sense of all this. That's what Pharaoh says in chapter 5. They come to him and they say, hey, well, Yahweh is telling us we're supposed to do this. And he's like, who is Yahweh? I've never heard of the guy, and I'm not really impressed, frankly. The God of a a slave people, I'm, I'm just not impressed. So please leave. Go and make more bricks without straw, right? It gets ugly. There's this interesting thing that's happening. Nobody gets it. And how could they? How could they understand? It literally says God has not revealed himself in this way to them. 
They don't understand God, and so they do exactly what we have done all of our lives. They apply the same parameters, the same categories of what they think God should be. What they've heard about other gods, what they've heard of religion, they apply it all to him, right? God is, is intangible. God is distant, it seems. No one has ever seen God. He dwells in mystery, right? It's one of the most frustrating aspects of spirituality, right? We all feel it. He is so different. He is so other. He is holy, right? And so... Since we cannot fathom his mysteries, what we do is we try to force him to fit neatly into our categories of what we think God should be. I don't know what God actually is. I don't really understand him, but this is what I think he should be like. We force him to conform to this mold that we have in mind, right? And that is the substance of idolatry. That's, that's what idolatry is. We objectify God in the same way that we have one another. We see it happen on a relational level. We have this tendency to objectify one another, but when we are guilty of idolatry, the problem is that we've objectified God, right? He who is the subject, we might say, the one who created everything, who spoke all of this into existence in an act of idolatry becomes ordinary and material. He's not mysterious any longer, He's something I can craft with my own hands, sculpt with my hands and mold into what I think he ought to be, made in my image, right? We objectify God. He's no longer the subject. He's no longer the primary actor in the story. And instead, he becomes just one piece, just one little detail in the whole thing. He just becomes an object in our story that we can now control and make more sense of. And this object, we can insert him into our lives where we want him and where we do not. We can remove him. We can control him. We can make sense of him and we can, we can make him more convenient, frankly. We objectify God. Our culture, our opinions, our dreams, our desires, our aspirations, our circumstances, these things shape us in ways we don't fully understand, right? And as those things all grow larger and larger, our circumstances swallow up everything in our lives sometimes. Our dreams swallow up everything in our lives. Our desires swallow up so much. And God just becomes smaller and smaller as these other things grow larger and larger so that we can fit him into what we know. It's much neater, much easier, much cleaner. But that's why idolatry is so problematic. That's why lust is problematic when we objectify one another. That's why this is, is problematic. We, we take this person who we see as beautiful, desirable, and this person in our minds that we desire so much grows smaller and smaller to us. Rather than understanding our desire, rather than being able to control our desire, we allow it to grow unencumbered. To the point that eventually this person has become nothing more than an object, the object of my desire, a desire I cannot control. I don't know what to do with it, and thus I just make this person an object of that desire I cannot control. So what happens in so many relationships, we know this, is we bend one another to our desires. 
I can't control my desire. I don't want to control my desire. I want to control you. And so I bend you to my desires so that you conform to them, right? I make you an object. I can't merely celebrate beauty. I have to possess that beauty. What's cool about Hebrew is, in Hebrew, the word for covet and for lust is the same. There's a greed to lust. I can't just appreciate beauty. It's mine. I get to manipulate it and use it for myself, for my own desires. We objectify one another, right? We make one another an object. And we objectify God in the same way. That's idolatry, right? I cannot understand God. I cannot control God. And I want to. I can't predict what God is going to do or what he's going to ask me to do. And so what do I do? I try to possess him and control him so that I can insert him where I need him and remove him where I do not. And it gives me the illusion that I do understand. There's a level of comfort we find in all of this. I am under control. And if you look at the story, it's exactly what Pharaoh's doing. Pharaoh is a man consumed by one thing and one thing only. His empire. It matters above all else, right? And Pharaoh sees Yahweh the same way he sees every other God, right? Those gods each serve a purpose. Ultimately for him, their purpose is attached to his, right? Their purpose is all bound to his empire. If they can help build his empire, sustain his empire, then he has interest in them and he will do whatever they require of him. But if not, he has no use for them, right? They all serve a purpose and that purpose is his. But this God that Moses proclaims seems to be outside of his purposes, outside of the scope of his empire. And if he is real, if what Moses is saying is true, then Pharaoh knows it will cost him far too much. This God is asking something of me, my empire. It would crumble if this was true. He has too much to lose, and so he resists. But obviously, Pharaoh is going to resist. We know Pharaoh is going to resist. Even if you've never read this story, you know no king is ever really going to be okay with this sort of request. What about the Israelites, though? Why do they resist? They've heard of the God of their ancestors. But when Moses starts telling them this incredible news, they don't get hyped. All they can see are the obstacles. All they can think of are their circumstances that have defined their life up until this point, right? Years of hard work, years of oppression have crushed their capacity for hope. Slavery looms large in their minds, right? That's what's the biggest part of their story. God is just a footnote in their ancient history. Their capacity for hope has been crushed. Again, things in the story we can completely relate to. Like every one of us, I think, at some point in our life has felt that weight, that crushing weight that keeps us from being capable of hope. At some point, all of us have felt like our circumstances are just going to perpetuate themselves. They're never going to change, and God seemingly is unconcerned or incapable of doing anything about it, right? There's this sense in us, if God can change this, and he hasn't yet, then I would be interested. But if he can't, if my circumstances are just going to stay the same, 
then I'm not sure I have use for him. Again, he becomes an object, the object of my circumstances. He is like a fix, a recipe for my circumstances. And inasmuch as he can do that, then I'm interested. But if he cannot, I, I don't know that I have use for him. And so we just kind of remove him where we no longer feel like we can believe in him or take advantage of him. We've all felt this. Or maybe we're more like Moses, right? Moses is somebody we can relate to. Moses' failures, his inadequacies, excuse me, his insecurities, they all haunt him. Who among us doesn't feel the same? They haunt him. He says explicitly, if my own people don't listen to me, why would I expect to go back to Pharaoh and something has changed? I'm not charismatic or convincing enough for my own people who are slaves. It's not hard to convince people to rebel when they're in that kind of condition. And Moses says, I can't even do that. And you want me to go tell the king to let us all go. How could I do such a thing? It will only get worse. Our identities can become so closely tied to our failures, our fears, our insecurities, that we don't know how to see ourselves any other way. That's bad enough. It keeps us from making a lot of decisions that we ought to. It keeps us from being courageous. It keeps us from giving ourselves completely to the things we ought to be. But worse than that, eventually, all of these fears and inadequacies all these insecurities, all these failures, they shape not just how I see myself, but how I see God. They become the lens through which I not only see myself, but the lens through which I see God, right? And I limit God in the same way that I limit myself. I begin to project all of my failure, all of my insecurity onto God. And so when I'm invited to do something by God, when I'm called to do something into the life of discipleship, I balk at it because I know myself way too well, right? Not just my experience of God, but my experience of myself tells me otherwise. That's what Moses is saying. Yet again, God is dwarfed by self, by my situation, by my circumstance. God just becomes this small detail in the story, as inadequate as, as Moses is, it seems like. And Exodus is here to dismantle all those notions that we have of God that are so shaped by all these other things. Exodus is here to demolish all of this resistance. God presses back with a, a single statement, I am the Lord. We said it last week. Exodus is here to confront us as much as it is to comfort us. There is a deep comfort in knowing, hearing the words from God's mouth, I hear the cries of my people. I have seen what they're suffering. Right? There's this deep comfort in that our God doesn't desire to dwell at a distance from us, but to be near to us. God delivers his people. Right? There's a deep comfort that comes from that, but there is a confrontation in Exodus. There's this resistance God feels from us. And where does it come from? Why are we resisting? What's making me resist? Or you do you resist because, frankly, you know it will cost you too much? I think it, 
at all points in our lives, we're wrestling with this. Like we realize what it means to be faithful sometimes will just cost us too much. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus in some moments will cost us too much. We know that and we live with it. It haunts us sometimes. We see our lives and we recognize, like, I mean, my life is relatively simple and uncomplicated. And to introduce him into this scenario here, I mean, the rest, it's fine. But to insert him into this scenario could only make things more complicated. All my power and my control over my life presently might be lost. On the other hand, maybe you find yourself relating to the Israelites Do you find yourself feeling so weighed down by your circumstances that it's hard for you to even comprehend hope? You've lived for so long as hopeless, as overwhelmed with your situation that you just, you can't. It's interesting, God doesn't condemn the Israelites for this. Moses goes and he tells them, but it says outright, they do not listen. They can't. Because of years of harsh labor, of of oppression and slavery, it's kept them from being able to receive any level of hope, right? The sense is, of course, God could change our situation. We know that. We've seen the amazing things he's done. We've heard the stories of what God did. Of course, God could change my situation. Of course, God could change me, right? But I'm not expecting anything anytime soon. Because it's been a long time coming, and I, I just, I'm just not sure I should continue to hold out hope. Do we resist God because we're just not expecting that he's going to actually do it? Not that he could, of course he could, but will he? I found myself in that place. I don't doubt God. There's so many times in my life where I'm angry with people, where I'm frustrated and fed up with humans. I don't find myself doubting God or questioning God, but there's so many moments I'm not angry with God. I'm not fed up with him, but there are these these sincere moments where I'm just like, I know you can, but are you actually going to change this or not? There are these moments we wrestle with. That's where people are. Maybe you resist God for that reason. We push against his purpose. Or maybe, again, you relate to, to Moses. Maybe you find yourself in this place where you failed far too often. In life and in faith, you have failed so often that you're just not ready to do it again. You don't want to continue to perpetuate all of this. And so you resist. When God calls you into something, you're aware that you probably just can't do that. I can't hold up under that kind of call, that that sort of obedience. I'm, I'm not capable of such a thing. You failed so often that you don't feel like you have anything to offer God. You don't have anything to offer the church. And so you sit and you wonder and you question whether or not this is really feasible. Your failures haunt you. And it's like God is saying to every one of these, the whole point of the passage is, I hear you, I get it. He doesn't condemn the Israelites. It's amazing. He doesn't say, okay, well, if you don't want to be free, you don't have to be free. He says, whether you want this or not, whether you think you're capable of this or not, whether you believe this or not, I'm about to do it. I am the Lord. And there are so many moments in our lives where we we find this out, right? Where God forces us to see this. That he refuses to fit neatly into our categories and our parameters of what God is capable of, what he will do. 
we find that God will never serve our purposes. We are desperately trying to objectify him and make him fit neatly into our stories to serve our purposes, and he never will serve your purpose. You will always be drawn into his story, not the other way around. We can't ignore him. We can't resist him and his purpose. We can't decide that we no longer have use for him or because we don't believe in him. He no longer is going to do these things. No. Our fears and our insecurities cannot keep him at bay. I am Yahweh, he says. I am the Lord. It's this powerful statement. And it's even more powerful when it comes from the mouth of Jesus. There's this moment, it's in John chapter 8. But if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you've seen it in other places. In this occasion, Jesus is teaching uh, among the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these respected, influential men. These men are so important in terms of shaping Jewish religious society. And he looks at those men whose greatest claim to faith is that they are sons of Abraham, right? That faith which justified Abraham is ours. We are sons of Abraham. His righteousness is our righteousness. They clung to this as their hope, as their pride. And Jesus looks at them on this occasion and he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Before Abraham was ever born, I am. And John wants you to hear it again and again. If you read his gospel, you see him doing it, right? He says, Jesus on one occasion told the crowds, I am the bread of life. On another, he said, I am the gate through which you enter. On another, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? He's constantly repeating the same phrase, I am. Jesus is drawing from Exodus. He's drawing from Exodus 6, this repetition, I am the Lord. I am. He keeps repeating it over and over again. So you'll know, I am the one, right? In Exodus, God was making himself fully known when he told Moses, my name is I am. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one through whom God is making himself fully known. I'm the one who's going to deliver you as you were once delivered from slavery in Egypt. I am the Messiah you've been waiting on. I am. But the problem is Jesus... He refuses to fit into the mold of their religious system. He refuses to live according to these parameters that they have in place. They've made an object of God for so long, they think they can control him and determine you know, what God is supposed to do and what he's not supposed to do. And so when someone comes along and says he's God, um, that's not just problematic for them. That, that's blasphemy, right? But it's not just that that he's claiming to be God. There are some people who could claim to be God and they might be like, well, I mean, guy's pretty righteous. I mean, he's the holiest guy I know, right? But it's like, this guy? He's from Nazareth. He has no training, no education, no lineage, really. Who does he come from? Nothing good comes from Galilee. Why would we expect anything good to come from him? Who is he? Bad enough to claim you're God, but for you? No. And so they resist. They push against him because he doesn't fit into all of their neat categories. He's different than they expected. And they're honestly not sure 
They want to be saved by him if he's the one doing the saving. If it's going to look like this, I don't know if I'm interested. I don't know if I have a whole lot of use for a guy like this. A poor man, a carpenter's son, wandering around the countryside with no place to, to lay his head. I, I don't know that I want to give myself to something like that. And so they resist. And we're confronted with this, this question continually. As we move into worship, the band is, is going to lead in worship. We're going to come to the table. And I think we're, we're confronted with that question. What makes us resist still? Maybe for you, you've been following Jesus for like a year, six months. Maybe you've been following Jesus for as long as you can recall. As long as you were a sentient being, you feel like you remember feeling this connection to Jesus, right? Regardless, what's making you still resist? That we find ourselves in this place where we have to ask ourselves the question, why are you still sitting at the edge, uncommitted? Are you afraid it will cost you too much? Are you afraid you'll fail? Are you afraid you'll be seen a particular way? Are you, are you uncomfortable because it doesn't fit neatly into life as you had imagined it being? Why do we resist? Why are we still so uncommitted? Why are we so half-hearted in our devotion? Like, What is it? Ask ourselves the question as we come to the table. As we come and we remember that the way in which Christ yields himself to the Father, submits himself completely. What's keeping us from submitting ourselves completely? What keeps us when God is offering us the deepest, most eternal hope from giving ourselves completely to it when he offers it? Why do we resist? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this moment and I pray that you would lead us in these moments. Help us to understand where our resistance comes from. Help us to recognize, Lord, where we've grown hopeless. Help us to recognize our fears and our insecurities and the ways in which they are paralyzing us. Now, Lord, we just want to be drawn into deeper devotion, deeper commitment, deeper faithfulness as disciples of yours. Now, change us in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name.